welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript and Biblical World listeners, this is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. This is a cross-listed episode because it deals with material culture and history, um, but is also relevant on the biblical side, and just felt like this is one that we wanted to put out on both the podcasts. So uh, if you're not aware that we have two, we have Biblical World, which is focused on culture, history, archaeology of the Bible. And then also OnScript, which is Biblical Studies and Theology. So hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Jason Stark for producing this episode. Our guest today is Dr. Christine Garraway, professor of Bible at Hebrew Union College at the LA campus. She has excavated at Ashkelon, Tel Dor, and Tel Dan, and she's the author of Children in the Ancient Eastern Household, published by Eisenbronz in 2014, and Growing Up in Ancient Israel, published by SBL in 2018. We're going to be talking about that today. She also has a book forthcoming called The Cult of the Dead, The Death and Burial of Children in Ancient Israel with Oxford University Press. And um, I just want to say, too, the the book we're discussing, Growing Up in Ancient Israel, won the Biblical Archaeology Archaeology Review uh, 2019 Publication Award for Best Book Relating to the Hebrew Bible. So it's a, um, great to talk with you, uh, Christine. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I mean, uh, last time, I think maybe last time we actually talked was when I was an undergrad at Jerusalem University College. You were a master's student, I think, at that point. So mm-hmm. it's been a while. It has been a while. <laughs> Lots has changed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so how did you uh, come to take an interest in this particular study of children in the ancient world and in ancient Israel? Was there like a particular event or or archaeological find that drew your attention to this subject? Yeah, there was. Um, when I was looking for a topic for my dissertation, my advisor, Dr. Neely Fox. Um, suggested that I just start looking through lots of different pictures and images uh, to see if anything sort of uh, piqued my interest uh, for a different project we were working on for for a class. And I ran across some footprints, clay footprints of children. And inside the clay footprints, uh, there was an inscription that said something along the lines of, uh, I can't afford to take care of my children anymore. So I am giving them up to the temple, and then it had the child's name. And these are from the site of Amar, uh, which is north of ancient Israel. And I wanted to know more. I thought, holy cow, was this a, a sort of place that people generally gave children to if they couldn't take care of them? Was this a really dire situation? And then we had the actual footprints of the child. So I was like, is this a a practice? Is this, you know, like an adoption contract? Or is this, uh, you know, proof that the temple now owns the child? Or was this something the mom kept as a memento? You know, like how we make little footprints of our kids, you know, hands and feet when they are little... Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, kind of reminds me too. You mentioned in the book how sort of newer 
um, analysis of pottery is able to determine uh, whether the fingerprints of the people who made the pots and pottery were children or not. So just that that like really personal connection you can have with your subject matter. Yeah. I mean, such cool things are now possible with all these cool scientific things that I can't do, but yeah. I'm glad that there's yeah. archaeologists who can do that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you're, um, I, don't, I don't know if you consider yourself an archaeologist per se, or you've just done work on archaeological sites. How do, how do you think about your your role? I mean, primary role is professor of Hebrew Bible. What, what role does archaeology play in the work that you've done? Well, archaeology, I would say, is plays a, a prime role in my research. I don't have the opportunity as much as I used to have now that I have my own family to go spend time in the field, uh, but I certainly rely on the reports of those who are able to go out and do the field work. I would say most of my work with archaeology is by talking to those archaeologists um, and you know, looking through reports and hashing ideas around with friends. I'm a member of ASOR and attend the conference regularly. So my, I guess, mm-hmm. tangentially um, archaeological, I, I wouldn't classify, classify myself as an archaeologist proper, but um, definitely uh, involved as much as I can be in the field. Yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's not an all or nothing thing where uh, you ha- you have to be able to know how to read archaeological reports. And so that that requires a certain familiarity um, that goes beyond taking popular works that archaeologists have done and, and understanding those. I'm j- I was just wondering if you could introduce our readers to the field of childist interpretation, study of children in the ancient world, especially as it exists in biblical and archaeological interpretation. Childless interpretation is a rather new field. It's a field that I have been at the forefront of helping create and get off the ground. Um, it, I think, developed, I guess it would be fair to say, uh, out of feminist biblical interpretation. And so we in the field understand feminist biblical interpretation as sort of our mother field, uh, using that whole family analogy. Um, seeing uh, what has been done there, and then applying it to children. So one of the things that feminist biblical archaeology, but also uh, feminist uh, biblical scholarship does is to try and identify those in the text that don't have a voice, that are overlooked, um, that have been historically silenced. And the field of childist interpretation, as I describe it, has sort of four pillars And that is to give the children in these texts as much agency as voice and voice as we can to responsibly fill in gaps in biblical narratives or in historical um, artifacts or narratives to change the focus. And this is really the big one from an adult centric view to a child centric view, um, especially when we get to archaeological remains looking at something and thinking, where was the child in this is a thing that hasn't been done until recently. Looking at uh, the the domicile, for example, people have thought about, oh, well, what was a woman's role? What were women doing? And my whole question is, well, clearly there were children there too. So what were they doing? So really flipping that focus. Um, And that's uh, also uh, flipping the focus also on work that has been previously done. 
as in previous interpretations of some things, need to be um, looked at again and reinterpreted again to find the children in those those areas. And then the last uh, pillar, this phrase comes from my colleague, Julie Faith Parker, is to look at a child's value and vulnerability within their society, noting that uh, children have this duality. And so we do these four different things, and not every single piece of childist interpretation does all four of those at once, but they certainly would do one of those four things, if not two or three of them in their work. Yeah, it's really uh, helpful and uh, overview of of this newer field of interpretation that you're helping pioneer. Yeah, I, I thought the description in your book of linking it to feminist approaches to the Bible was helpful, and especially the work of someone like Carol Myers. I'm just wondering if you could if you could talk about her influence on you as a, as a scholar and interpreter of archaeology, and and maybe some of her insights that have prompted your thinking in this area. For sure. Uh, Carol Myers was incredibly influential in the way that I started to approach my own work. And one of the, I I think her methodological approach specifically is what really um, helped me sort of hone my own framework in that she looks at the biblical text for women, but then says when the biblical text isn't enough or it's not clear enough, where can we turn to to think about, to reconstruct what in a, with integrity, um, what might have been going on? And so she looks also at sociological um, approaches. She looks at ethnographical literature and she also draws in archaeology. And these are also the tools that I use in my own research to think about the ways that children might have been operating in ancient societies. Um, what, what are some of the examples of where the Bible is silent when it comes to children or perhaps understated, underdeveloped, but where archaeology can help us understand the, the life of children? Well, the biblical text as written by men and concerned with things that have nothing to do with children is silent in a lot of areas. And I would say that you really have to dig through the biblical text looking very hard for the daily life of children. And that is definitely an area that archaeology can help us think about ways in which children um, grew up. So, for example, what did children wear? Very few references in the biblical text. We have a whole iconographic record that can help with that. Or what did a child do when they woke up to when they went to bed? You know, we don't really have a, a day in the life of a child within the biblical text or what a child did from dawn to dusk. But the ethnographical record has a lot of information about this. We get archaeological um, realia that shows, you know, what children might have interacted with within a house. And then we have the skeletal remains of children themselves where we can actually see and learn about some of, you know, what children ate, what diseases they might have had, um, what sort of hardships they might have had from the skeletal remains. So archaeology can be super helpful in that respect. When archaeologists analyze the skeletal remains of children, are they able to get any sense of nutrition and, you know, how malnourished or nourished kids were in ancient Israel? Um, Yeah, do you have any insights on that? Yeah, 
Uh, this is a, a field that I've had to educate myself in. Um, again, thinking about reading these archaeological reports and what some of these terms that are, are being used. So when you look at children and you get the skeletal reports, which are generally a separate section at the back end of, of a field report or an excavation report, uh, we can learn about things like if children had scurvy, you can tell from the, the bone development, teeth can show a lot about children uh, mm. and their nutritional development. And like so much so that as I was learning about this, I was like geeking out with the dentist, my kid's dentist. And oh, wow. <laughs> I was like asking her to look at my son's tooth to see if she could see these different lines and kind of help me ex like understand because I wanted to look and see his tooth and like... Um, <laughs> But they, you, you can learn, like, if a child has had a significant um, nutritional a deficit, it, it shows up differently in the way that the teeth are developed. Um, obviously, broken bones that have been mended, you can, you can tell fractures and things like that. Um, and then, I mean, there's just so many different things you can tell, especially from teeth, um, which are often mm. the only things that archaeologists have found in in tombs because children's bones break so easily and they disintegrate easily but teeth kind of stick around forever right. either that or they had the tooth fairy and they were collecting things <laughs> i don't know yeah i was gonna ask how many how many uh, shekels a kid would get for a, a lost tooth in ancient israel um you know it seemed like a fair price <laughs> <laughs> who knows <laughs> yeah so um, you talk about barrenness in the book. Uh, you, you really do a good job of sort of following from from conception till uh, birth and and through the death of children in your book. Uh, so barrenness is obviously a major concern in the ancient world. So, so what are what are some of the measures that, in particular, women took to address barrenness, and and were there social stigmas attached to this? Well, the biblical text definitely would have us believe that being barren was a terrible thing. Uh, we have all sorts of narratives, especially about the biblical matriarchs, where they can't have children, and then it's a miracle when they do have children, and then their children grow up to do great and wonderful things. And so while this seems to be sort of a, a trope biblically, it does point to a larger issue that is in reality children were needed. Families needed children because they needed to have people to help in the field, they needed to have an heir. They needed to have elder care for when the parents were older. They needed children for you know, financial stability, um, to intermarry with uh, other people, to populate uh, villages, and to reproduce their own culture. So children were definitely desired, and it was a social stigma if a woman uh, could not have a child. And so, of course, there were many different ways one could go about uh, getting or, or bringing a child into the family. And for barren women in particular, uh, there were ways they turned to. Um, and we have some suggestions from the Bible, and we also have some suggestions from Mesopotamian texts and Egyptian texts as well that show the lengths that women would go to. So first and foremost... The understanding of how conception worked in the biblical world was that the womb was by default closed until the divine opened it, which is obviously different than the way we understand things today. 
So if we under, if they understood that the divine had closed the womb, then your first sort of course of action would be to pray for the divine to open the womb. So if you are barren, you might have lots of prayers and or sacrifices that you would offer in order for the womb to be opened. And indeed, there are many different texts, not just from the Bible, where we see um, Isaac praying on behalf of Rebecca or um, you know Hannah praying to the Lord in in the temple in in First Samuel, but we also see this sort of uh, prayer in other places in the ancient world as well. So prayer is one thing, and then there comes the fun stuff where we get an insight into the natural medical uh, methods that they used in the ancient world, and. Some of these, I think, like, how in the world did you come up with this? And what in the world is going on? Now, one of my favorite texts that demonstrates this comes from Mesopotamia, and it's part of the um, ancient, it's called magical medical literature. So this is literature that has been written down and it has been kept. And you would need to you know, go to a specialist probably to get this particular preparation. You would crush uh, and flay a hairless mouse. And then you would put a whole bunch of different herbs and stuff yeah, in the mouse. And then you would insert it into the woman to open up her womb. Now, to me, that sounds like a fast track to an infection and death for the woman. Oh. <laughs> it does not sound healthy. Just a caveat for listeners. Are, are you recommending this or, or not necessarily for <laughs> contemporary practice? Yeah, this is do not try at home. <laughs> for sure. Okay. All right. Thanks. Yeah. So we, ha- we have things that were written down that were tried. Um, we, we do understand that there was a whole practice of... Um, you know, women passing down knowledge between themselves that was probably not written down because, again, most of um, the ancient population was not could, could not read and write themselves. So we're we're kind of left with again a uh, um, an androcentric or a male centric view of how conception and birth worked. But we we do have texts where they try these things. Um, there's also ways of, of thinking about getting pregnant. And they kind of seem silly, but as someone who's given birth myself and uh, struggled with that, like I kind of get it where, for example, you could carry around a stone that was hollow, but that had a little pebble inside to try and, you know, symbolically represent the desire to have mm. something within you. And again, you know, it might seem silly to us in a more Western context uh, and an enlightened context um, where we understand things different scientifically. But, you know, it, I think, is not too far-fetched to think in the ancient world that they could have believed that this might really help them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even in a modern medical sense, like, you know, there is something to a psychosomatic you know, approach to these topics that a lot of people would put some stock in that uh, even if it you know technically doesn't help medically with I'm thinking of carrying around the stone you know it might it might uh, have an impact uh, at that level your your study also provides some insights 
uh, regarding the birthing process. So we talk about barrenness and pregnancy. Uh, what can we say about how women gave birth? And I'm, I'm thinking here of the uh, birthing stones that are mentioned or the stool that's birthing stool that's mentioned in, in the Bible. Like what, uh, what can we say about how women gave birth? Well, again, we're doing our best to reconstruct an ancient practice. And so often the way we uh, do this is to look at ethnographical parallels. And um, the birthing stones that you refer to um, appear in Exodus. And these could be similar to the birthing bricks that have been found in ancient Egypt, um, which seem to have a magical guardian sort of uh, thing about them. But think of just two bricks that you would place on either side of the um, the woman, like hip distance apart, that maybe she would squat over. Um, in the Western world, everyone gives birth. Not everyone. Check that. The If you go to a hospital, um, traditionally, you lay down to give birth. Um, this is uh, changing with more... Um, uh, you know, doulas and, and other um, practices now. But in the ancient world, it was definitely you did not lay down, you squatted. Um, and so these bricks that you would squat over, or perhaps a chair that you would squat on. And if you think of like, what is a birthing chair? Think of a chair with a hole cut out in the middle, and it would help support you. <laughs> and these would be a, a way for women to be supported both physically with the object, but also spiritually um, or, you know, by the divine because these bricks um, and perhaps other things that were in the birthing room um, itself would uh, have been called upon to protect the woman as she went through this dangerous transitional period. So we, we've talked about pregnancy and giving birth. And um, I want to jump ahead a little bit. It's not quite in sequence here because you you also talk about um, nursing in the book. Um, but as, as kids growing older, um, thinking about the religious life of ancient Israel or what we can glean through comparative ancient Near Eastern literature, what can we say about the role of children in the religious life of the community? Children, um, again, we don't know a ton about exactly what they were expected to know. There's not, you know, an ancient catechism or, you know, Sunday school classes that they had, but we should understand them to have been living daily, as we would call it now, religious practices. Um, again, in the ancient world, I don't think anybody thought of what they did as oh, I'm going to do my religious practice now, or this is religion. It's just the things that they did were, were a part of, it was just life. And so to that end, parents would be modeling on a daily basis the things that were needed to be done in order for life to go forward. And in Deuteronomy, for example, Deuteronomy chapter six, it talks about teaching your children and inscribing um, the words that God has been repeating to adults, teaching them to your children so that your children can grow up and teach them to their children. Um, in the book of Exodus, after the Passover happens and after the um, escape from Egypt, it says, 
when your children ask you in the future, why did this happen? So anticipating that children are going to ask about events and then giving parents the tools to talk to their children about what has happened. So religiously, we should understand that they are getting the sort of values that um, an ancient Israelite family would need on a daily basis. Apart from that, we know from the archaeological record that within the house itself, this was, um, you know, the woman's sphere where she had her kingdom, shall we say, and she was in charge of doing a lot of things to help uh, the household economy um, survive. And in doing this, uh, these would have daily religious practices as well. Again, small children would be seeing these, they would learn how to do them. So for example, baking bread. Well, how is bread baked? Well, yes, you need to bake bread to, to eat food on a daily basis, but you would also be giving offerings to gods at various times. And so children would learn how to make those specific special sorts of bread. Um, in Jewish tradition, uh, when you make challah on Friday, you pinch off a little piece of the dough um, and give it as an offering in layman's terms. Um, and so if things like that were happening in the ancient world, children would have seen that and understood how to do that as well. Um, Household idols, these teraphim that appear in the biblical text, what are they? How do they function? Did they? Did people interact with them in a certain way? And if they did, again, children would have been observing these, we can logically infer, and learning how to, to you know, let's pretend if you're going to pray to whatever God, maybe you move their... Um, their idol over to the to the altar or or away from the altar, and so children would um, learn and pick up on these things. And again, anyone who has been around small children knows that small children love to parrot exactly what older people around them are doing, for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. So you you've um, you've touched on on something that uh, I thought was really helpful in your discussion on the terracotta figurines and some of the. Um, debate there among archaeologists. So you have these things called Judean pillar figurines, or uh, and then also these different animals that are made out of clay. And and people debate whether these are religious or whether they're just toys that kids play with. And you kind of had a, a middle ground in saying, well, maybe they were religious. They seem to appear at times in cultic settings, but they also could have been played with by kids or or used in an imitative way, you know, whether those exactly or ones like them uh, by kids as they watch their their parents. Uh, also, I just want to pick up on one thing you said, because um, it ties back to our discussion about feminist approaches to archaeology, and that is you mentioned the household economy. And, and I think that's an important phrase because it gets at the idea that insofar as women are, um, I think you said, like you know, over the their kingdom, the, the domestic sphere. That's not in opposite. It's not in opposition to the workplace because uh, they didn't have a sort of domestic workplace split. And so kids are, in essence, like you know, on the front lines of the economy too. Whether they're actively participating all the times, they're watching it unfold because the house is a place of food, you know, processing and textile production and so on. So you had a number of insights 
into Genesis 2 and 3 from your study, which I thought were really interesting, uh, particularly in your discussion on clothing, um, both of children and, and adults more generally. So, what can you say about Genesis 2 and 3 from your study of, of children and clothing that, that maybe listeners are, are not familiar with? Well, I guess my insights into Genesis 2 and 3, um, and again, this is the creation uh, narrative, the Garden of Eden story that we're talking about, came first from the iconographic record where I saw the youngest children um, that were depicted as naked. <laughs> okay, So I was like, oh, really young children don't wear clothes. Um, this is also informed... Um, by some feminist uh, rereadings of the Genesis 2 and 3 narrative, which sees um, this as a coming-of-age story. So if we understand the, the different stages in the story as moving from birth through childhood, through adolescence, to sexual maturity and adulthood, I kind of was looking at how we might map that with children and clothes as well. So if you recall... Adam and Eve are naked and they are not ashamed. And this would correspond to, using this as an allegory, children at the youngest or an individual at the, the youngest stage in life. So naked, not having uh, clothes on. Um, Pre-adolescent, innocent Adam and Eve then would mature into sexual beings. And after they eat the forbidden fruit, they look at each other and they are quote, ashamed because they're not wearing clothes, and so they put on clothes. And um, they provide themselves with clothes made out of fig leaves. Um, and I think you and I learned this when we were in, uh, in Jerusalem, that a fig is a big leaf. I think one of our professors was like, why, why a fig leaf and not an olive leaf? And there we had firsthand, like, fig leaves are big, olive leaves are small. So this is why fig leaves um, for the first clothing. And after that, um, in Genesis uh, 3, God then allows Adam and Eve to have um, animal skins to cover themselves. And this sort of coming-of-age story is again seen in another ancient Near Eastern myth. This is the story of Gilgamesh and his buddy Enkidu. And Enkidu enters the narrative um, as someone who lives among the animals. He's kind of like an ancient Tarzan. And he is also naked and unashamed, and then he too has sort of a sexual awakening when he meets with uh, the wise woman, um, and he undergoes a change, becomes humanized, and one of the very first things he has to do is put on clothes. And so I thought it was really interesting in these narratives, the way that clothes sort of showed a shift from innocence, as described in the narrative, and naivety, and sort of a childlike description of, of the individuals to a shift in when they do have understanding of a, a sexual nature that clothes are put on. Um, and we seem to see this a little bit in the iconographic record too, that the older children are, the more clothes they don and the more they become or the clothes that they put on look like adult clothing. Yeah. So, so in that sense, the Genesis two and three story portrays a a childlike Adam and Eve. Now, maybe not literally as children, but in this story of 
growth in wisdom mm-hmm. or how, however you want to phrase that. This is not just a sort of downfall story is kind of what you're suggesting, right? Yeah, it's a story of, of growth and development and um, gaining wisdom in all sorts of areas. Yeah, I'm, I was, uh, you know, you were talking about the development of clothing and from nakedness to fig leaves to animal skins. I'm surprised the story didn't take it all the way to textile production um, to to woven clothing, because that seems, you know, as you talked about in the book, that's a sort of later stage as well in in human cultures too. And and you also talk about clothing as something that can form social bonds, Um and could designate the status of a child. What, what could you say about those two things, about social bonds and and the ways clothing can mark status? In many, you know, it, it does today in certain respects too. So I'm just curious if there's similarities or differences too. Yeah, uh, I would say that the two stories that probably show this the best, as far as both marking social status and forming bonds, are the stories of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, and the story of young Samuel. Joseph's coat that he wears, um, or that he is given by his father, is called, it has a, a special name in Hebrew, um, Katonet Pasamim, and scholars have struggled to figure out exactly what this is. It, it seems to be a, a tunic that extends to the palms, um, so a long-sleeved tunic, And this is given to him clearly as a sign of favor by his father. Now, this particular tunic, this um, description is also seen with the princess Tamar, who is David's daughter in 2 Samuel 13. That's where her story is. Um, And so she wears this as a princess, uh, specifically a a betula, a, a woman of marriageable age who is not yet married in the story. And both of these individuals are adolescents in their stories. We're told specifically that um, Joseph is 17, and it's super rare for the Bible to give us any age of a young person. Usually we hear of people living, you know, for hundreds of years. Um, So we know that both Joseph and we should also assume Tamar, as she is a princess and not yet married, are adolescent but are of marriageable age. So these two garments signify a specific social status, which is one of, for Joseph, favoritism, one that maybe shows um, he's getting the firstborn status. Maybe that's why his brothers are mad at him. Um, Hard to say. But he definitely has a special gift that he's been given. And for Tamar, um, the garment that she's wearing um, after her story is is a terrible story, it's very sad. And after she is sullied by her half brother, she rends her garments in grief because she is no longer worthy of wearing them to to outwardly signify that her status has been demoted. So I think those two stories, uh, or that that story, um, shows a lot about an older person. Um, Samuel's story shows something of a younger person um, where his mother makes him a special uh, little tunic that she brings to him on a yearly basis as he is in the temple. And this gift that she brings him each year, um, clearly he's growing, so she's making a bigger one each year, 
shows us the bond that she has with her son, but also um, is befitting of his status as someone who is serving in the temple before the Lord. Yeah, I thought, you know, just that story of her making that garment, such a moving account. You know, you think about the effort required to make a tunic. You know, it's not like she made it over the weekend. Right. And so she's, you know, perhaps like really uh, bonding with him in the process, not just of bringing it to him, but also of making it for who knows how many hours. I think I've seen different statistics on, you know, what it would have taken to weave a garment for someone, but we're tens of hours for sure, um, if not if not more. Of course, when we talk about kids, we, ha- we have to talk about play. And so, uh, to ask a basic question, did kids play in ancient Israel? Um, and, and I'm thinking of the fact you mentioned in the book that uh, ch- uh, infant mortality is around 50, 50%, and then another 50 didn't make it to mm. age mm-hmm. 15 or past mm-hmm. 15. So was there even time to bother with playing or is it like as soon as they're, they can lift a toy, they have to help out? Yeah, it's, it's a daunting statistic. I would say the way we think about play in childhood today in the Western world is not the way we should think of how children operated in biblical times. They probably played I think there's lots of instances of play. There's a whole field called the anthropology of play that looks at different types of play. So when I think, like initially I was like, oh, play, like, did they have games? Did they have, you know, little like cars or dolls or whatever? But there's actually a lot of different ways you can play. And I think we do see inklings of this. I think it wasn't all work, 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 but I think there's something about human nature And this is, again, where the anthropology of play field comes in, where play is essential to all human beings. As adults, we still play. We might play in a different way than we do as children, but there's something, I think, integral into our humanness that requires us to play. So so play can be physical objects, and I'll come back to that, but play can also be imaginative There were games that were found um, in the ethnographical literature, which is akin to what we might call today um, King of the Hill. And so we could imagine, you know, maybe maybe kids were playing that. Or um, one was like sheep and wolf, which sounds a lot like tag that we would play today, where one person is it, like chasing the other people around. And I mean, you can just imagine kids sneaking away to do this. And then the ethnographical literature... (laughs) has these great stories. Um, and most of the, uh, a lot of these are drawn from a woman named Hilma Grenquist, who was working in the early 1900s in what was then called Palestine and outside of Bethlehem in a village called Artis. And she records this great interaction between a mom and her uh, daughter, where the mom is looking for the daughter and the daughter's hiding because she doesn't want to work and she just wants to keep doing the sort of play thing that she was doing. So yes, I think children were playing. And I think children have always been sneaky, avoiding adults. (laughs) So so we have imaginative play. There's also um, storytelling is a form of play. And so we can think of even the oral stories that are passed around, that's how we understand the biblical texts to have originally been transmitted. But then there's those physical objects. And I 
think we should also um, um, point out the fact that there's this joke that archaeologists have that when you find something in the archaeological record and you have no clue what it is, the answer is, oh, it was either a religious object or a toy, as in it's something totally unknowable, and so it has to be either of those things. Now, some things that have been found that fall into those categories, of course, are I, uh, what might be called idols, what other people would call um, figurines. Uh, there's female figurines, like those Judean pillar figurines we were talking about. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with those, you might have seen them in pictures. They look like uh, they have a, a base that you can hold. And then they're women holding large breasts, and they either have sort of a pinched bird-like face or a molded uh, head with a headdress on it. And with those, they could have been both religious objects, I would argue, and also perhaps children played with them. And I think we also need to realize that most objects did not have one use. We are not talking about societies where you throw things away after one use. You're talking about societies where things had life after their initial um, what they were intended for, life was over. In the same way, you know, like kids might bang on pots and pans as drums, right? Imagination, but also using cooking items for musical instruments. So even, I think, broken figurines that were found, you know, maybe children were picking up the faces or picking up um, the the bases and restructuring out of out of clay and dirt, the, the rest of, of the, the image. So it's hard to tell what exactly they were used for. But yes, I think children played. Yeah, that's it's a really helpful picture. And, and I also just want to highlight the way you answered that question for listeners, because you're, you're showing the multidisciplinary approach you're taking, uh, you know, looking at the life of children through by looking at biblical texts, looking at ancient Near Eastern texts, um, ancient Near Eastern pictures, physical remains, and then you also mentioned ethnographic studies that would be contemporary or you know near contemporary societies that might live like ancient Israelites live to glean insights. So um, I just want to kind of reinforce the point that what your your study is bringing together is all of those things to be able to give voice to children, which, uh, if you just read the biblical text, you're you're not going to hear a lot on. You hear bits bits and pieces, but they're not obviously center stage. So it was really uh, helpful to think about your approach there. I, I want to go back to you know I mentioned mortality rates. What can you say about the practices around the burial of children? Children don't often make it into the burial record, and this again is because their bones are small and often breakable it, or, or, or it's called friable. Like they, they just break easier than fully ossified or solidified adult bones. Sometimes in older reports, archaeologists weren't looking for children. They didn't expect to find them there, so they're overlooked. Other times, and this is like a, a major face palm, they were thought, they were <laughs> archaeologists found them but identified them as animal bones because they were small and not humans. And I'm like, oh my goodness. 
you know, how much has been lost. But of the uh, remains that have been found, there's all sorts of interesting ways that children have been buried. So prior to the Israelite period, in the Canaanite period, children were often found buried under the house and in a jar, the infant jar burials. And these are particular to children who were from, you know, age zero to around two or three. And store jars, if you're not familiar with them, were rather large. So we're not talking about like a tiny vase or something like that. And it seems to be a way to specially commemorate the child who had passed. Now, the why this child was buried in this particular location, that has a lot of um, areas for interpretation. A return to the womb has been suggested, you know, maybe a, a way for rebirth for the particular child or for a woman hoping to, to have more children. But what we see in the Israelite period is that this practice of jar burials, not to use a bad pun, but kind of dies out <laughs> in that we have a new understanding or a new way of how children are to be buried. And so within Judah proper, within the southern part of ancient Israel, um, a new, just completely Judean way of burying would be to bury in a family tomb that is a bench tomb. So if you think of um, what an ancient house looked like, where you would have sort of uh, an entryway, maybe some stairs, and then a room with sort of niches, or, or a big room with niches on the side. This is what an ancient um, rock-cut bench tomb would look like. And this particular type of tomb really solidified, again, around um, the Iron II period, which is from uh, around... 1200 BCE to 586 BCE to the to the fall of the first temple. And again, burial forms kind of ebb and flow. So there were inklings of this sort of tomb prior to this period, but it really solidifies in Judah as the way to bury. And what we find is that children are also in these types of tombs which to me was like amazing because if we look at surrounding cultures and surrounding lands during the same time period, children aren't always included in burials with their families or in cemeteries with their families. And there seems to be a real emphasis in what I would argue as marking children as Judean by including them in this iconic a quintessential Judean monument to death. So in life and in death, um, a marker of keeping the family together, which I think is phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, that is that is amazing because you think about, I'm thinking of John Levinson's study on death and resurrection, and he talks about, you know, the ideal death is to live to an old age and, and be gathered, quote unquote, gathered to your fathers, which is probably a euphemism for being gathered in your family tomb, but here you're talking about children being gathered to their family, even though to die as a child was not obviously ideal in ancient Israel. Yeah, I just want to uh, pan out uh, as we 
bring our our discussion to a close and and ask about these some of the big takeaways from your study regarding this, um, children in ancient Israel, and you know to ask a fundamental question where were children valued? You've touched on that now, and and maybe some of the ways that uh, the practices related to children might have differed in other ways too from their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. I think children were extremely valuable. Um, they were um, invested in time and energy, and uh, resources were given to children. The biblical text seems very invested in showing how Israelites should be different from their neighbors. And while we don't have Canaanite texts, uh, we don't have Jezubite, Hivite, Gershite, whatever, you know, like all those lists of people texts, we do have this text that seems to say we are different than our neighbors. And so it also makes me wonder if children were not invested in perhaps as much in other surrounding cultures. I don't know, because again, it's, it's difficult to say. I think children were valued in all ancient cultures, but the biblical text really seems to emphasize that children should be taken care of. It's important that you have family. It's, you know, it's the first commandment given. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And this is the commandment that uh, becomes the hallmark of, of the covenant with Abraham, you're going to have as many children as the sands of the, the sea and the stars of the sky. So, I mean, we think about that in adult terms, like, oh, yeah, there's got to be a lot of Israelites. And usually we think that means like grown-up Israelites. But to get there, they have to first be children. So I would argue that this idea of a reproduction and getting the children to, to grow up to be proper ancient Israelites, um, I say that with scare quotes, uh, was very important. And especially when we consider the mortality rate, you know, the statistics seem to argue, and I think um, Carol Myers has this in her book, uh, Rediscovering Ancient, um, or Rediscovering Eve, a woman would have needed to have eight pregnancies in order to raise two to three children to adulthood. Oh, wow which a woman would have spent her entire adult reproductive life more or less pregnant by the time we consider, you know, like nursing and, and you know, you have to nurse for a while and then you can get pregnant again. So this, I think, also shows the great value that they had on children. And it wasn't just like, oh, a child died, bummer, or, oh, who cares, like infant mortality rates. Yeah, we know this is going to happen. I, I think there, there was something more, especially when we see super young children being buried in family tombs and quite literally being gathered to their ancestors. So I would say, yes, the biblical text, the archaeological record, all of it points to the value that ancient Israelites placed on children. Well, Christine, uh, I want to thank you so much for your work in Growing Up in Ancient Israel, again, published by SBL in 2018. And we look forward to, uh, to your uh, forthcoming book, The Cult of the Child, the Death and Burial of Children in Ancient Israel. Thanks so much for your time and this discussion. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. 
If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.